So uh, it's 2024. Um, I've already found myself writing 2023 uh, a few times. Uh, uh, hopefully I'll get used to it, uh, but we are moving into the year. And, uh, you know, I wanted to start off the year as the new year comes by, you know, just, just rejoicing that there is a new year and using it as an opportunity pastorally to help lead us as a church. Uh, that, you know, that's part of what I, I do. I want to shepherd the flock. And so I'm thinking about, hey, it's a new year. And what would the Lord have for us as we enter into the new year? In, in, in the new year, there's a lot of, you know, resolutions and things like that. And in the new year, there's lots of newfangled things that come our way. New diets, new trends, new workouts, new this, supplements, new this, new that. And, you know, and so people in the new year are thinking about, you know, new things. Maybe I'll do something new. Uh, and, and with that, uh, this kind of spirit of doing new things can find its way into churches. A lot of churches uh, that are in my feeds in January, they do something called vision casting. And the pastor gets up and gives his vision for the church. And uh, if you can't tell by my tone, that stuff just irks me. <laughs> so I, I love that in our church, uh, I think you guys would probably stone me if I did something like that. Um, and, and I would welcome it because you don't come on Sunday to hear a man's vision. You come on Sunday to hear God's word. And the job of the pastor isn't to give his vision. The job of the pastor is to take the word of God and serve it to the people of God. Uh, in, in fact, in many ways, if you think about a restaurant, that's exactly what the server does. I'm not the chef. I'm not the cook. I'm the server. My job isn't to make the meal. My job is to serve the meal that has been prepared, which is the Word of God. And, and, and as God has given it, not to repackage it, reinterpret it, or whatever. There's meaning in the text, and so the job of the faithful minister is to walk to the table to those who you serve, with the feast that has been prepared by the chef. And so we come to the Word, and I started off the first Sunday of the year. My first message was, New Year, Same Word. And started the year with an emphasis on the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God. In the New Year, a lot of times people do, in churches it's kind of popular, to read through the Bible in a year. And so we, you know, we handed out on the first Sunday of the month uh, reading schedules that you could tuck into your Bibles, and you could work your way through the Bible in a year. It's something that is worth doing every year, and so the new year is upon us, and if you didn't start, it's really easy to catch up, and wanted to emphasize, hey, new year, same word. In the evening service for the first Sunday of the month, the message that I gave for the evening service was new year, same prayer emphasizing the importance of prayer, the Word of God, and intercession. These are foundational things for our lives. When you find yourself growing cold spiritually, often it is the case that we, we have wandered from prayer and we have wandered from Word. And so we, we pray, we communicate to God, we sit before the Word and He communicates to us. New Year, same Word, New Year, same prayer. And last Sunday I gave a third installment on the second Sunday of the month, New Year, same plan. Same plan. And so all of this is just to remind us of these foundations. Uh, in New Year, same plan, we surveyed uh, Romans and Ephesians and Corinthians where we see the Apostle Paul speaking to the church and reminding them to remain steady in the plan that has been given to us, namely the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the growth and the nourishment of the church. Uh, this is to serve as a reminder because, again, a lot of times churches get off track and they think, you know, we want to grow our churches, healthy things grow, it's good to want to see things grow, but then we start relying on things other than the plan of the gospel, the preaching of the word, and the prayers of the saints. And we start relying on gimmicks and TikTok and this and that, and, uh, you know, over my dead body and over yours, would we want to ever drift into becoming a church like that? So. This is a bit of a mini-series to get the year started. Same old thing. The point of this series in January is to remind us of the importance of relying on the means of grace that God has given to us. And henceforth, we have been looking at word and prayer and the gospel. Lest we take a turn on Change Boulevard instead of, instead of enjoying and coasting on same old street that God has given to us. There is a saying, and there's some wisdom to this, but not in the case of what I'm talking about this morning, and the saying is something like this, that 
the definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Have you heard that before? You know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. But that's not in the case of word, gospel, and prayer. We keep doing it over and over. And you know what? I'm always expecting a different result. I'm always expecting for God to move and to do something different, something cool, something amazing by doing the same thing over and over and over, reading His Word, praying for people, and advancing the Gospel. Uh, this morning, as a part of this series, I want to, I want to emphasize uh, that it is a new year, and yet we still have the same God. So my installment this morning is going to emphasize uh, the sameness of God, and as we get into the text of Scripture this morning, we are going to be in the book of Psalms, so if you would open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, and find your way to chapter 102. New Year, same God. By way of introduction, the book of Psalms comes from a Greek word, psalmos, which means a song or a hymn. The Greek translation of the Hebrew word for the book, tehillim, which gets translated into Greek as psalmos, but tehillim means praises. Uh, the book of Psalms, tehillim, is a praise book for God's ancient people Israel. It is a rich well of praise and theology uh, for God's people. Uh, it, it is, if you want to think about it this way, and this is a helpful way of thinking about it, the book of Psalms is like a song list. It's like your iTunes or your Spotify or whatever you, you, know, you listen to your music on. I'm so old I think of mixtapes, but probably some of you are like, a tape? What's a tape? Mixtapes. We used to have to make tapes and you have double deck cassettes and you play the song you like and hit record on the other side and then you stop and you find another song and you make a mixtape. Well, the book of Psalms is like a mixtape. Uh, that said, today's message is going to be taking us into this mixtape and one of the things that is, though it's a, a different uh, collection of different songs, they are all saying the same thing about the same God and these psalms are pointing the listeners of these songs in this mixtape, they're pointing them to, to God. The songs express things in the earth, and the things in the earth that are being expressed get processed through focusing on the heavens, on the God who is. In today's message in the book of Psalms, we'll look at some chapters in Psalms, and we'll let the Word of God speak to the people of God. And as we explore it, I will emphasize to you from the text certain key characteristics about God namely His immutability, His omniscience, His omnipresence, His omnipotence, and His holiness, which you have on your outline. Now, point number one, we'll get into the immutable triune God. The God revealed in the Bible is triune. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. As you move from the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, as you move in between these two, from start to finish, it's the same God. The God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. As you start in the beginning with Genesis and you get to the book of Revelation, as you're going, it is a progressive revelation, which is to say you get to know God more and more. Uh, on, on a first date, right, if someone just started dropping, you know, advanced knowledge about them on you, you might not get to a second date. It, it progresses. As you hang out with someone, you start finding out more and more about them. So too with the scripture from the first book, Genesis, to the last book, Revelation, you get this progressive revealing of God. And, and as it is revealed, you find out more about the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. We find out that this triune God in Scripture is immutable. Uh, immutability relates to God's unchanging nature. To be immutable is to be free from all mutation. Unlike the creation that is constantly changing, God is immutable. Scholars note that immutability distinguishes God from mutable creatures, such as humans and animals, that are born, grow, and die. It also distinguishes God from inanimate things that are molded, moved, and destroyed. Unlike these, God does not have to grow and change, nor can He be reshaped or destroyed. Any change He would undergo would be for the better or for the worse, but those are impossible because He is a perfect being. At the same time, God is not static and lifeless. Rather, He is free from change because He is, all at once, the totality of life and activity. This is good news for us because it means God is God who is gracious to His people. God is God, which is to say He is identical to Himself and none else. He, God, can never be uh, what He is not. He is never anything other than Himself. He is unchanging. Not just in His nature is He unchanging, but also in His will. 
And that's a wonderful thing because it means that God's never going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed. When you run to Him, you know what you're going to get. And thankfully, if you are in Christ, you know what you're going to get is always going to be grace. He is a gracious God, the God who is. And His grace is unchanging for He is immutable. God is an amazing God. In Psalm 102, we have a subscript at the top of Psalm 102 that says, A prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. The, the, the psalmist here is pouring out his heart. There is discomfort in his life. There is uh, confusion. There's stress. And he runs to the Lord with this, the Lord who will bring him comfort and solace. Look at verse 1. Hear my prayer. Psalm 102, verse 1, if you have your Bibles open. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. So the psalmist runs to God for solace. He is looking to the Lord, and what we're going to see in this chapter is he finds solace in reflecting on the immutable nature of God. Look at verse 11. You see him musing on God's immutability. My days are like a lengthened shadow. And I wither away like grass, but you, O Lord, abide forever, and your name to all generations. The psalmist sees creation withering like grass, but God as, uh, as abiding forever, without change. His, his name, the, the Hashem, His identity, who He is, is, is not going to change with the generations. You, if you know Christ, if you have great-great-grandkids who know Christ, that's the, the same Christ. He, he does not change. You have A on your outline under the immutable triune God. God is God who is gracious to us. A, the Creator is unchanging. The days of man are just like a shadow that goes away. The grass withers, but you, 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 you God, abide forever. With the new year before us, we always emphasize not just trying to read through the Bible in a year, but also doing the catechism. We have a catechism that does one question a week, and so at the end of the year, 52 weeks, you get a full, robust feast of theology if you muse on the question each week, and definitely if you memorize the question. The second question of our catechism, which we studied this week, hopefully you're feasting on it this week, the second question of the catechism is what? What is God? And, and, and the answer in the catechism is that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable. See, that's immutability. In His power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth, nothing happens except through Him and by His will. Unlike us, you know, God's never caught off guard. God doesn't have things happen that isn't filtered through His will and his way and what he's up to. God is unchanging in his power and perfection and his goodness, his nature. He's unchanging not just in nature, but in his, uh, in his will, in his mind. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. This is good news because it assures us that God will never turn on us. There's a horrendous doctrine that has crept into the church through the sands of time. It is a doctrine that teaches that you can lose your salvation. That you can go from God looking at you as a son or a daughter to, to being kicked out of the family. That, that you can sin your way out of His grace and mercy. It's a, it's a horrendous distortion of what we have inside of the Bible. Uh, furthermore, it is an assault on God Himself, for God does not change His mind. When He chose to save you, when He chose to adopt you in His family, that isn't anything that He's ever going to reverse. He does not change His mind. He will never cease to be gracious to His people. In this context, the psalmist is thinking of the people of, of Israel. And, and he's like, look, look, like you're so faithful to us. And you read the history in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, and you See how Israel wanders and God is so faithful to keep calling her back to Himself. The story of the Bible isn't just a story of creation. The Bible begins with creation and the Creator. It begins with God making humanity, pouring His love upon humanity, humanity rejecting His love and making a mess out of things. The giver of life then takes back life as a just punishment for the crime of rebelling against Him. And the creation moves from paradise into dysfunction and, and, and death and 
and, and destruction and disease and war and the rest. And you follow that storyline and, and it's messy, but God comes into the mess. He promises from the very beginning to our first mother that he would send one through the seed of the woman that would crush the kingdom of darkness. And you follow that promise that was made. The promise goes to, from Eve to Noah, and it goes from Noah to Abraham, and from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob, and they, they, their, their children make Israel, this holy nation that God sets apart. And he promises to them an unconditional promise that he is going to use them to be a nation of priests as a part of restoring paradise lost and bringing humanity back to himself. The king of the people of Israel, David, God promises in 2 Samuel that 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 seed promise given to Eve, given to Noah, given to Abram, now given to David, that through the line of David would come this, this king who would rule perpetually and restore paradise lost. You, you follow this storyline, and it's a storyline of God's faithfulness to the generations of His people who He pulls into His covenant. Look at verse 12 in Psalm 102, verse 12. You, Lord, abide forever in Your name to all the generations. From Eve to Noah, Noah to Abram to Isaac to Jacob to David. The psalmist sees the Lord as abiding forever and enduring through the generations. This generational endurance is mentioned again in verse 24. Look at Psalm 102, verse 24. Psalm 102, verse 24. Oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout what? All generations. The promise to the people. God's years are through the generations. This is a poetic way to describe the eternality of God as well as the perpetuity of His covenant that is given to His people unconditionally. And you can take it to the bank that His promise is in perpetuity and it's going to come to effect. You can take it to the bank because God is immutable. He doesn't change. He doesn't break His Word. His Word is bond. This is immutability. That is God's freedom from all change and His being the same time at all times, past, present, and future. Immutability, God's freedom from all change, existing outside of time. He is all that He is in one unchanging moment, free from the movement and development of history. Speaking of history, I just surveyed a moment ago of God's creation and His love that was rejected. That brings us to be on the outline. The Creator is unchanging, the creation's undoing. Humanity rebels against God as noted. Death comes into the creation for they have rebelled against the giver of life, and so death comes. The creation moves from harmony to disharmony, disarray. It moves from, clar- it moves from clarity to confusion. It deserves to be judged. It doesn't deserve even to exist because it has rebelled against the giver of life, and yet God in His mercy chooses not to wipe creation out, but to redeem and save from creation a people for Himself through whom He will restore the creation. The prophet Malachi, we read this morning, if you were here for the public reading of Scripture in Malachi chapter 3, he tells us what? I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. For from the days of your fathers you have turned aside my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now verse 6 is very clearly teaching immutability, is it not? The Lord does not change. This is good news for Israel because it means Israel receives grace. Otherwise, they would have been destroyed. O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. You deserve to be consumed, but you're not because God is God who is gracious to His people. Scholars note the primary reason Israel has not been destroyed is because of Yahweh's faithfulness to His covenants with the nation. Yahweh will not change His mind concerning Israel. How will we return prophet. How will we return, Malachi says. Now regarding the question, how will we return, Malachi answers this question. And if you were reading through, through Malachi, uh, we surveyed Malachi last year in our Bible Institute. It's a w- wonderful text. But if you're reading through Malachi, he asks this question, how will we return? And then he takes a, a bit of a turn and starts addressing some other stuff. And then he comes back at the end of the book to say how God's people will re- return. Chapter 4, verse 6 of Malachi. Malachi answers the question, how will we return? Let me quote it for you. Malachi says, God will restore the hearts so that I will not come and 
uh, to the land with a curse. God will restore their hearts so that you won't receive this punishment that actually you deserve. I'm going to restore your heart. I'm going to change your heart. And that, that, that change is going to go on. This is a part of His plan that He's working out in history. The creation has its undoing. Paradise is lost. But the Creator wasn't caught off guard by any of this. He, he knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. And He is working out a plan to remedy the creation's undoing. That plan involves His promised people. His promised people in the promised land, Zion. Draw your eyes at Psalm 102. Look at verse 16. You see the psalmist pointing you to this. For the Lord has built up, Psalm 102, verse 16, Zion. He has appeared in His glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. They will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For He looked down from His holy height from heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner to set free those who were doomed to death. He's come to set the captives free. He's come to deliver. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' first sermon in the Gospel of Luke was what? That He had come to set the captives free. The, the plan for uh, 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 remedying the creation's undoing isn't just the people of God in the covenant. The crux of it comes when God the Father sends God the Son to the people. He takes on the literal flesh of the people, lives among the people, and dies, and dies at the hands of this oppressive Roman government, dies as an innocent sacrificial lamb to atone for the sins of his people and those who would come to him. We read in the text of Psalm here of a people yet to be created who would praise him. These are allusions to the inclusion of the Gentiles and the church who would be swept into the covenant through the Christ. Which brings us to see on the outline, we see the Creator is unchanging, the creation's undoing. Now see the Christ uncorrupted. We move through this story of unrequited love. The promise of the seed that went from Eve to Noah to Abram to Isaac to Jacob to David to Christ. And Christ... He is, he is immutable. We read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, let me put it in front of you, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And you know why he doesn't change? Because he's God. Again, we worship one God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. The historical Jesus of Nazareth existed before he was born. He is the eternal Son, one with the Father and the Spirit. He doesn't change because he is God. Look at Psalm 102 in front of you, verse 24. If you draw your eyes at verse 24. O God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. He's unchanging. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Verse 26. Even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Jesus is unchanging because Jesus is the eternal Son, one with the Father and the Spirit. Unchanging in His divine nature. But get this. In the month of December, we did Christmas Christology. The eternal Son, get this, becomes a man. The divine nature that He shares with the Father and the Spirit, the one God, the unchanging, immutable God, the person of the Son takes on a changing, mutable human nature. And so the Jesus of Nazareth, unlike the divine nature of God, the Jesus of Nazareth, his human nature is changing. He moves from being a baby to being a boy. He goes through puberty. He has to learn to read. He learns different languages. He learns about relationships. He has, you know, heartache from people who reject him. He goes through the gamut of human emotions. The God who never sleeps or never slumbers takes on a human nature and now has to go to sleep at night. In the one person of the Son, now you have mutability and immutability, not in contradiction, okay, because of the hypostatic union. In his divine nature, he's unchangeable. In his human nature, he is changing. 
The prophet Isaiah who foretold of this coming figure, this child who would be born. Look at what he says in Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Avi, Prince of Peace. Hundreds of years before the historical Jesus, this prophecy offers a promise of hope through a future Davidic king. The figure is more than mortal man, for he is called Mighty God. He is said to be eternal. Mighty God clearly refers to God himself. In Isaiah 10, 21, it's used that way. So in Isaiah 9, 6, it wouldn't be any different. The unchanging, immutable God chose to take on mutable humanity in Jesus of Nazareth. The immutable eternal son became a mutable man. Existing out of time, he is all that he is in one unchanging moment. Free from movement, free from, from uh, mutation, now he steps into the womb of a woman where he's undergoing, right, the processes of development inside of a womb and the processes outside of the womb of human development. And why does he do this? No coming, no taking on this second nature. We would have no perfect sacrifice for our sins. No mortal man could atone for us because mortal men are stained. Furthermore, mortal men can't forgive you of your sin, for God alone can forgive sin. So we need both a mortal man who is perfect to be a sacrifice, and we need more than a man. We need a man who's also divine, for God alone can forgive sins. This is the good news of the gospel, that the triune God has entered into creation to remedy our undoing. And he did so in the coming of the Son, who became what you are, but never became what you have done. He's never sinned. He's perfect. And unchangeably so in his divine nature. And he hangs on the cross, bloody and beaten, and he dies a death that we all deserve. He dies to pay a debt that he did not owe. You know why? Because we owed a debt that we could not pay. This is the good news. This is why in preaching this good news, it is the job of the preacher not just to describe it, but to call you to it, to plead with you, to beg of you, to come to Him, to be forgiven by Him, to know Him. We move from God's immutability. We've got to pick up some speed here. Would you move from Psalm 102 to Psalm 139? From immutability to omniscience. I'm going to take you to Psalm 139. This is a Psalm of David. And David is in a time of distress. And in his distress, he turns not to things of the earth to remedy them. He turns to God of heaven. And he reflects on three omnis, which will be the next three points in the outline. He reflects on God's omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. Omni is a way to say all. So God is omniscient, meaning all-knowing. He is omnipresent, meaning, meaning all present and omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. So we move on the outline from immutability to omniscience. Immutability reminds us that God is gracious to us. He doesn't change on us. His omniscience reminds us that God knows all about us. God possesses the quality of being all-knowing. Omniscience is usually analyzed as knowing the truth value of every proposition. God knows all true propositions. He has unlimited knowledge in all true things. A, on the outline, we see in the text of Psalm 139, we see about God knowing what we do and what we think. Draw your eyes at Psalm 139, verse 10. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. Uh, David here says that God has perfect knowledge of all of his thoughts and his life. It is God alone who possesses such absolute knowledge of his creatures. He understands David's thoughts from afar. That's the ultimate description to speak of God's omniscience. It doesn't matter how far you are, He knows. He knows what we do, what we think. Furthermore, He knows who we are. This is significant. Look at how David phrases it in verse 3 of Psalm 139. You scrutinize my path, my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. God intimately knows all about us. He knows who we are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. You have to understand that we can be self-deceived. We can view ourselves in a way that is not real. This is true physically, relationally, spiritually. 
Physically, we can view ourselves as a 10 when maybe we're a 2, right? Um, you know, there are people who, you know, have a high view of themselves or whatever. We, we say that they're conceited or narcissistic or whatever. Great comedians have spoofed these kinds of people. I think of Jamie Foxx and his character Wanda Wayne on In Living Color. That was hilarious. Or Martin Lawrence's Shanene Jenkins, who is this really ugly character who thought she was all that and a bag of chips. And we laugh at these characters because they're stereotypes of people we know. Indeed, on some level, these stereotypes remind us of ourselves and caution us of our own ability to self-deceive. Not just physically, but also relationally and spiritually. Relationally, people can be deceived about relationships they have. They might think that they're, you know, uh, have this relationship with this person when they don't, what have you. We can dupe ourselves not just in the way that we look, but in the way we relate. And spiritually, we can think that we're on good terms with God when we're not. We can be spiritual shenanigans who think that, you know, we're fine with God and, uh, you know, God don't like ugly. And so there's an issue that's there. We think that we're on good terms with God because we think we're spiritual or we're nice or we, you know, went to church every once in a while or whatever or we're, oh, I don't judge people or, what, you know, whatever people are coming up with to rationalize this. Uh, not David. He's quite concerned that God scrutinizes our paths and he knows who we are and he sees right through us. You know, th this is what always fascinates me when people say things like, only God is my judge. I'm like, you say that with confidence. We're supposed to say that with fear and trembling. I'd much rather have you as my judge um, than God. God, the holy, all-knowing God who sees everything. You can't delete your browser history on God. He sees everything. He knows even the stuff that you thought about doing but maybe didn't do, and he's going to get you for that too. He knows what we do, what we think, who we are. See, he knows what we say. Verse 4, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Even before there's a word on my tongue, you know it. You know it. Uh, in uh, the genre of battle rap, when two rappers are going at each other, one way that one battle rapper can diminish the other is to predict the punchline. Uh, it, it diminishes them because it's like, ha, your punchlines are so predictable. So if you're da-da-da-da-da-da, grow, da-da-da-da-da, no, da-da-da-da, slow, the other rapper's like, these are, these, these are so easy, and he'll just start saying the word that you're going to say with you, and it makes you look dumb. Uh, because it's like, how did you know I was going to say that? Because your bars are whack. Well, in God's case, he'd be the ultimate battle rapper. Like, he knows what you're going to say before you say it. And, th and this isn't reason to say, well, then why pray to God? Because he already knows. Because he loves you. He's chosen you. You're the apple of his eye. You're, you're special to him. This, this isn't a reason for us not to pray or not to talk. It is a reason for us actually to bow down. Look at verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. It's so wonderful. It's beyond us. God knows what we're going to say before we say it. This shows He is the Lord. I want you to understand that omniscience is, was a big deal when this was written. We might think, oh, that, you know, yeah, He's omniscient or whatever. But in this era when it was written, omniscience was not a claim that people in other religions made about their other gods. Ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian texts, for example, describe gods who were not omniscient. You think of the Greeks, you think of the Romans, their gods were not omniscient. They were figuring things out. They were watching for intel. The God of the Bible doesn't need spies to tell him what's going on. He knows all things. Unlike mythical polytheistic gods who were sometimes unaware of what was happening and were overtaken by surprise, the living God of the Bible knows all things. That fact helps to deter secret sin, religious hypocrisy, and temptation to hide from Him. Especially when we consider God's grace and His omniscience together, there is no need for me to hide or be hypocritical, not only because He sees the truth, but because even when I sin, I know that I have forgiveness in Him. Why hide? He knows where you are. Why hide? He's so gracious. He's so gracious. He will forgive you. Hiding is foolish because he knows all, but it's foolish because he's willing to forgive all. 
The gods of that age, when this was written, not only did they not know all, but they were not willing to forgive all. Petty gods, petty gods that you have to keep performing for in order to maintain your salvation through ritual lest you lose it at the hands of mortable, changing divines. The God of the Bible is immutable. Second, the God of the Bible is omniscient. Third, the God of the Bible is omnipresent, which tells us that God is always with us. The word omnipresent means that God is present everywhere in creation at the same time. Simply put, God is always everywhere. There is nowhere where He is not. The omnipresence of God is also referred to as the doctrine of ubiquity. The word ubiquity and omnipresence are synonymous. God is ubiquitous. That is, He has the property of being present everywhere. He does not travel from one place to another because He is in one place and another. Actually, all others at the same time. Uh, Some say this is hard to understand. Really, it isn't. God is not a physical thing, so He is not limited to being in one physical place. Nor does omnipresence uh, mean that He fills all places. Uh, God fills the crea- if God fills the creation, then the creation is more immense than Him. It's His container, you see. God is not contained in. He isn't filling all things. God is omnipresent not because He fills all things, but because God is not a substance that has spatial extension to fill. He is immaterial. Matter is what occupies space. So no two particles can be in the same location. God is not a composite of particles. God is not a composite, furthermore. Humans are composites. We can be broken down into parts. Arms, legs, thighs, eyes, right? Uh, you, you can be broken down into parts. Chickens can be broken down into parts. Wings, thighs, legs, breasts, right? You remember years ago when they had the, the chicken wing shortage? <laughs> it was like, oh no, you know. I was quite panicked about that because I love me some wings. Uh, incidentally, it was, it was funny because there was a surplus of thighs. And it's like, well, how does that work? You know, one bird has two thighs, two wings. You know, what's going on there? We're composites. We're made up of legs and thighs and chests and arms. God doesn't consist of parts. He is not limited as a particle or a composite being. He is immaterial. Hence, the omnipresence of God is not by extension, multiplication, or division of essence. He is in every place similarly as the soul is all in every part of the body. The whole essence of God is here in this room. It's there. It's everywhere. And at the same time, He is distinct from everywhere because no place contains Him. In addition to thinking about God being everywhere at all time, we need to understand omnipresence as all things are present to God. Um, I could say more about that, but there isn't time. The omnipresence of God. God is always with us. A, He is the living He is with the living and with the dead. Psalm 139, look at verse 7. Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. The point of this is to show that God is with the living and the dead. He is in heaven. Verse 8 indicates this. He is in the underworld. Verse 8 indicates this. He's, he's He's in the heavens. He's in Sheol. In that culture, Sheol was thought to be the underworld of the dead. It was the equivalent of uh, some distinction, but roughly the equivalent of what in English we call hell. So heaven and hell are complete opposites, and thus saying God is in both, it is making it very clear to the readers the omnipresence of God. Okay? Sometimes I'll hear people say, hell is where there is no God or whatever. Like, hold up, uh, you, did you just deny the omnipresence of God? God is everywhere. There's no place where He is not. He is the God of the living. He is the God of the dead. He is the God who judges uh, those who end up in hell. He is the God who reigns in love and mercy in the heavens. The idea is that God is over all places. He's even in polar opposite places in the invisible realm, the heavens and hell, the north and south pole of the uh, invisible realm. If a being exists in heaven or in Sheol, uh, right, all those beings are aware of the presence of God albeit in different ways. I don't want to know the presence of His judgment. I'd much rather prefer the, the presence of, of His love and His mercy. You, you, you think what they call Cambridge change, when you think of a, of, of a building, say there's this tall building and it's a really hot day, right? If you're on one side of the building where the shade isn't being cast, you're standing there and you're just getting beat. You're getting beat because of the side of the object of which you are standing in relation to, you're getting beat by the heat. 
If you move to the side where the shadow is cast, it's nice and cool. The, the building doesn't change, it's just where you stand in relation to the building. So too with God when we think of the heavens and the hell. God, God hasn't changed, it's where you stand in relation to Him. If you're hit by the heat or if you're in the shade of His grace. He is with the living and the dead. Be on your outline. He is everywhere supporting His people. That is good news. Speaking of wings, not chicken wings, but look at verse 9. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Uh, the psalmist is showing these opposites. We saw the opposites of heaven and hell. Now we see him in the sky and in the sea. There's no place where he is not. There is no place that can contain him. In verse 7, David asks what? Where can I go? Now again, in ancient religions, when this was written, this was some baller, new, like what? He's, <laughs> he's everywhere? Because you, you read ancient religions, their gods aren't everywhere. Their gods have zip codes. They dwelt in certain regions of the earth. Oh, the god over there, the, the god of the mountains and the god of the ocean over there. They, their gods had zip codes. In other religions, the, the deities were limited by his or her specialized domain. This sort of thing does not happen in the Bible. Uh, to the critics who say, oh, the Bible just copies these. No, it doesn't. There's, not, there's nothing like this God. There's a new year, same God. He's unchanging. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's not limited to a location where his power dwells. He is not like the gods of other religions. He's omnipresent. And the point of his omnipresence is that God will, in the words of the psalmist, lay hold of me. He cares for his people. He's, he's watching over his people. See on your outline, he is repelled by no one or no thing. Look at Psalm 139. Draw your eyes at verse 11. Surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the psalmist says, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness, though, is not dark to you, God. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. What a bold claim. In this historical and religious context, darkness was a place where spiritual forces were at work, and yet they could not, they could not stand against this God. In, in this time, many religions worship the sun, or they place gods in and on the sun. In religious artwork from this era, it is common to see the imagery of, and I'll show you a picture here, of a winged solar disk, right? The, the gods are like on the sun, in the sun, in verse 9, you have a reference to the wings of the dawn, which is like playing on this imagery. When the sun sets, it was believed that the gods or the gods descended into the underworld of the dead. The Egyptians saw the sun set in western mountains. From an Israelite orientation, the setting of the sun was the distant horizon of the Mediterranean Sea. For the psalmist, there is no affirmation of mythological belief. The use of solar imagery underscores the psalmist's faith that his God is with him everywhere with a guiding hand. The omnipresence of God was, was, was incredible. And so the psalmist, as he's pouring out his heart, as he's dealing with his own stress, as he's got things going on, right, he, he just, he, he finds, oh my goodness, in this omnipresent God, I know that he is always with us. And I find great comfort in that, that he has not left me alone. Let's move from omnipresence to omnipotence on your outline point four. The word omnipotent means having all power. God is able to do all things that are objects of power. He is able to do so without diminution of his infinite strength. He's able to do all things that are consistent with his nature and all things, you know, that are logical, uh, which would be consistent with his nature because God is true. So sometimes God will say, or skeptics will say, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Can God make a two-horned unicorn? You know, can God make a square circle? Uh, you know, it's like, dude, are you, you're being for real right now? Like, those are contradictions. Like, you can't have a two-horned unicorn. You can't have a married bachelor. That, like, those are contradictions in terms. So, no, God can't make a two-horned unicorn. Ah, your God's not omnipotent. He can't do... No, no, he could do things that are logically possible because his nature is true, so he doesn't do things that aren't true. Uh, you, you don't, you know. Furthermore, things that are true to his nature, his nature is holy, so God can't lie. But that's, that doesn't mean he's not omnipotent, that he can't lie. Ha <laughs> I got you. No, no, he can't lie. That, that's a good thing. It's true to his nature. It doesn't mean that he's not omnipotent. He could do all things that are consistent with his nature. 
Now, the, the psalmist isn't dealing with skeptics, so he's not offering these sorts of retorts. He's dealing with his own life and stress, and he's, he's musing on God's omnipotence and seeing that God can do all things for us. God creates life, so we are dignified. Look at verse 13. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. He sees that God creates life, hence we are dignified. He sees that God controls life, so we are secured. Look at verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet not one of them. God controls life. God creates life. In verses 17 and 18, he sees that God cares for life. How precious are your thoughts, verse 17. Of me, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. David reviews God's care, control, and creative power to show God's omnipotence. David delights in God's power and creation, his sovereign providential control and care. Now, you'll see on your outline, if you have one, that I have a line, I say, digression. I want to digress. Let's let David hold. We'll come back to David. I want to take a digression. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Churches all around the country are talking about the sanctity of life. Um, Many churches will be in this very passage that is in front of us, looking at Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. We we have in the text here uh, not just teaching about God, that He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, but also teachings about what we are. And it's clear from the text that humanity is sanctified, dignified. The Scriptures teach that they're made in the image of God. Today is chosen to be Sanctity of Life Sunday because it is the closest Sunday in proximity to the 1973 Supreme Court ruling, 7-2, uh, to support abortion, Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade changed the course of American history. Now, for some, when the anniversary of that day comes, there is celebration in their hearts. However, for Christians, we look at the day as a tragedy because we cherish life. Hence, we see the anniversary as a day to focus on the sanctity of life and to remind saints in our churches of this lest they be led astray, bamboozled, and hoodwinked by secular powers to think anything other than what is the case, is the truth, that humanity is sanctified. This is uh, known uh, nationally as the Sanctity of Life Sunday since its first presidential proclamation in 1984. It it was uh, designed to awaken the consciousness of many hearts in the country to see what is at stake. I take the digression here not just because it is the Sanctity of Life Sunday. I take the digression as well because it's in the text in front of us. He's talking about babies in the womb. It is a timely digression for us to take in 2024 because the election is upon us, and this is a highly relevant issue, especially after 2022 when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Rather, it's not so much that they overturned it. They just freed states to decide uh, where they land on life, uh, calling into question the propaganda that abortion is a human right as opposed to the real right of humans to exist and not have their lives taken from them or even the political right for uh, this whole concept of, you know, the United States of America, for states to decide what what rights are their rights and what have you. It it shouldn't have turned to a federal issue. Anyway, since Roe, millions, millions, millions of human lives have literally and legally been ripped apart. As Christians, this is huge for us because we believe that humans are made in the image of God, Furthermore, we're called in Scripture in places like Proverbs 31.8 to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. That's a direct quote from the Word of God. Uh, Who can't speak for themselves is who's most vulnerable, a human domiciled in the womb. Now, it is important in this, and you'll see on the digression at the bottom there that I have a secular argument. It is important to make a secular case for things because a lot of times... Uh, believers will be marginalized because they'll say, oh, you just believe that because you're Psalm 139. You know, it's like, n- no, I, I, I believe it because of science. Uh, I believe it because of science and common sense. It is important for us in particular to understand this in California because there is the saying, as California goes, so goes the nation. So it's important for believers and churches to understand the secular argument. Um, uh, California, by its sheer numbers, is the nation's abortion capital. 
The stats are alarming. Uh, it is important for churches to stop and talk about this and equip the saints to engage in this topic. Um, our taxes are, are funding this too. There are whopping 522 abortion clinic providers in the state, dwarfing even New York. Uh, I mean, it's, it's horrible, horrible. Let's consider the secular case. Number one on your outline at the bottom. Scientifically speaking, at the point of conception, the unborn human child is a unique individual living being. So this notion, my body, my choice, is just patently false. It's a smokescreen for the real issue. Yeah, your body, your choice. You want to get a tattoo? Knock yourself out. You want to get your ears pierced? Knock yourself out. Uh, not you, my sons over here, who want to do those things. You, you must wait a while. Uh, you want to cut your hair, you know, knock yourself out. That's your body, right? You want to trim your nails. No, don't trim your nails. No, that's your body. You can trim your nails. We're not talking about your body. We're talking about a separate body. We're talking about a separate body. This is important. This is an important thing to hit. Scientists are very clear on this. Dr. Micheline Matthews Roth of Harvard University Medical School Quote, it is scientifically correct to say that in an individual, human life begins at conception. Um, the scientific fact is human life begins at conception. When you have a zygote, you have a human. It's growing, developing, responding, functioning. It's burning fuel and oxygen. It's, it's giving off waste products. Its cells are reproducing. That's the properties of a living being. Incidentally, uh, Dr. Matthews Roth has a wonderful online article on the uh, United States Senate Committee on the Judiciary that's worth reading. The abortionist says, uh, no one knows when life begins. That's just patently, scientifically absurd. It is necessary to point out that life is unique in conception. The baby in the womb of a mother is a unique individual life. This is an important thing to note because many advocates of abortion say, you know, get off on this. You could do what you want to do with your own body, but that's not your body. I, I mean, it's just common sense. How many, how many toes do you have? Like, how many, how many, how many fingers do you have? Right? Ten. But those are 10 separate fingers. You don't, have, you, you don't have 20 fingers. Clearly, that's a separate body. This sort of thinking that a woman has a right to do anything that she wants with her own body is, is false on other counts. First, a woman can't do anything that she wants with her own body in this country or any civilized country for that matter, and neither can a man. It's hard to think of any liberty that exists unrestrained and unfettered by other concerns of legal limitations. The law routinely interferes with our personal liberties when there is proper justification. It's illegal to commit suicide, for example. It's my body. I get to no, no. We intervene and, and try to stop people uh, from doing things that harm themselves. Second, the living being inside of the mother's womb is not the mother. It is separate and distinct. In fact, this is why the unborn is capable of existence completely independent from the mother's body. That's what makes fertilization in vitro possible because it's a separate life. The fact that a child must be biologically sustained by its mother is irrelevant to its identity and value. Babies of all ages depend on others for feeding, uh, whether via blood of an umbilical cord, breast, or a bottle. In no sense, no child is really viable even for years after it's born. I'm a grown man and I'm still not viable. Ask Erica, right? <laughs> we conclude then that the unborn child is a living being separate from either of its parents. This brings to the next question, what kind of a being is it? It's alive at the point of conception. What is it? Well, as the offspring of two other human beings, the unborn human child is also a human being for the full duration of its, of its existence, hence babies in the womb deserve protection under the law. That life will take many forms in its life, but it will always be the same life, a human life. Some will say, it's not a, it's not a, a, a baby, it's a fetus. <laughs> you know fetus is just the Latin word for baby, right? You know, like, come on. Uh, then they switch gears and they say, well, Okay, fine, it's a baby, it's not a human, though. You know, it's not a person. It's like, oh, critical thinking. We, we really need it back in our classes and our lives. Uh, no, no, that is a human. The DNA identifies that specific zygote as human. If you line up a bunch of zygotes under a microscope, we can tell what it, what it is. We can, tell, we can tell what it is by just looking at it once it's in conception. And certainly, once you watch it grow, you can tell what it is. It doesn't take a degree in, in science to know what you're looking at here. Maybe a, a, a better projector with more pixelization, but look at what you're looking up here. That's a baby dolphin in gestation. This is a, a baby shark in gestation. 
Thanks to ultrasound, uh, we can see uh, through the eggshell of emperor penguin chicks. Here's a picture of a, a penguin chick floating in egg fluid. You, 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 can, see, you can see what this is. Uh, cats may hate water, but here's a two-month-old cheetah. As yet unborn, it has no choice but to swim in that amniotic fluid. Uh, here's a, a picture of an elephant. Well, you know, it's alive, but we, we don't know what it is. No, you know what a shark, a cat, an uh, uh, elephant, a human. You, you know what you're looking at. The DNA identifies the zygote as human. The unborn has a genetic signature settling in it right at the moment of conception. Using biology, laws of science, and straightforward common sense, it's very easy to show that an unborn child is a human from the very point of conception throughout the duration of his life, from the womb to the tomb. The unborn has this genetic signature setting it apart from all other types of living things, elephants, sharks, cats, penguins, and the rest. And because of this, because of this, then it stands that law should protect life. Speaking of law, it's worth noting that under our penal code, in the section on murder, a fetus is included. It's in our penal code. So if a pregnant woman were walking across the street and was hit by a drunk driver, that driver would be charged with two counts of murder. What happened? Oh, it's just my body. No, no, no. Two counts of murder. Drunk driver hits, two counts of murder. Now the irony, let's say that the woman was walking across the street and before she was struck by the drunk driver, she was actually walking into a Planned Parenthood to have her baby's life ended. That would be legal, but the drunk driver would be punished. I submit to you that there's no difference between the, the drunk and the so-called doctor. They're doing the same thing. They're taking an innocent life. This is our secular argument. On the back of your outline, you have the biblical argument, which has already been made by the psalmist so eloquently, namely that life begins at conception. We see in the psalms, he's, God's in the womb. The unborn baby is genetically, physiologically, organically a distinct person. The Bible commands against the unjust taking of human life, and since abortion is the taking of a human life, it is scripturally evil. Now, in light of what the Bible says and science affirms, we should be heavy about this. We were talking about human life, and we know it. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Have you seen this picture? Dr. Joseph Bruner, Vanderbilt University Medical Center, is known for his work in fetal surgery especially on babies with spina bifida, a condition in which the spine does not close properly during development. What you see here is a picture of one of his patients, Samuel Armis, 21 weeks, holding the finger of the surgeon through a, 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 an incision that was made. To ensure no digital manipulation of the images before they were seen, USA Today requires that film be submitted unprocessed. When the photo editor finally uh, uh, phoned uh, them about this. They said it's the most incredible picture they'd ever seen. Let the picture sink in and listen to what is happening to little hands like this in the womb. Abortionists currently kill 1.2 million babies per year, 3,288 per day. Globally, it is estimated to be 46 million per year. That's 126,000 per day. To get an idea of the tragedy at hand, keep in mind that radical Islamicists killed 2,792 innocent people on September 11th. We're having 9-11s happening every day in the land of the free and the home of the brave. This nation which prides itself on humanitarianism is in a murderous cycle of violence that makes 9-11 bombing look mild by comparison. Now if you're like me, this, this makes your heart heavy. Um, at, at, at moments you can e e even f feel a sense of anger. Ephesians cautions us in our anger not to, not to sin. The Bible tells us in Psalm 711 that God is angry with the wicked every day. We'll have feelings of anger. We'll have, we'll have feelings of frustration. But in this, we need to be reminded of the message that has been heralded to you this morning, point number one, that God is a gracious God. And as we come to the God who is, we're calling out on Him, God be gracious to us as a nation who slaughter 3,288 a day. Be gracious to us. God, empower your church in such a day as this to point people to you who can pardon us in light of this sin. Uh, no doubt in a room of this size, uh, statistically speaking, there are those who have likely made that decision. 
uh, you were taken advantage of by worldly systems who led you to believe things that just simply weren't true. And, and in that, we can have feelings of guilt and shame and remorse and what have you, which is also why it is important to talk about God in His grace. You need not carry that guilt and that shame. You can run to Him and know that there is forgiveness. And on the other side of that, I would be remiss if I just spoke of His grace and didn't remind you of what I said a moment ago, Psalm 711, God is angry with the wicked every day. Which brings us to the final point on the back of your outline. Incidentally, there's a typo. It says point four, but it should say point five. The holy God. God is a just judge whose grace transforms us. I need to land the plane. We're going to look at the text quickly. Verse 19, 20, 21. Would you look there, please? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Uh, he's speaking of God's holiness and God's judgment of evil. That there are those who seek bloodshed. There are wicked people in the earth. And he calls on the judgment of God. In, in doing this, David, though, is, is, is mindful when we call on this, to also be self-reflective, lest our own hypocrisy be swept in his judgment, which leads to be on your outline. David cries out that God would reveal hypocrisy in the righteous. Look at verse 23. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, and know my anxious thoughts. As it relates to the issue of pro-life, I, I think we need to hear this. Christians speak against those who do not, you know, uh, those who are caught up in this whole abortion thing or whatever, but at the same extent, there's hypocrisy in the church because many, many are unwilling to be involved. Uh, furthermore, many are, are led astray in other forces that feed into this. Namely, we have this culture of death because we have a culture that does not celebrate childbearing and childbirth. In our culture, what do we do? What do, what do we ask little kids all the time? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? Right? And if you, if you ask the little girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? She said, I just want to get married and have some babies. We go, oh, you know, oh what trailer park did you come from? You, know, uh, you just want to get married and have babies. Whoa, whoa. Uh, no, you need to you need to go, you know, you need to go take on massive debt to get a degree in something that doesn't matter, work a job that you hate, and you know, you do that for like 10 years or something like that. And right around when your biological functions for procreating are starting to close, right in there, try to sneak in one. And if you're lucky, you can get a boy and a girl, and then you then you cinch everything up because you shouldn't do more than that. Uh, I got seven kids, so I'm a spectacle everywhere I go. You go to the store with seven kids, and people, strangers, are like, are those yours? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, they're mine. All of them. No, I borrowed some. Yes, they're all mine, you know. Are you done yet? Uh, I'd like to have more. What? You know, uh, what does your wife think about that? You know, it's like, we're just a culture that does not, we don't like babies. They got restaurants, they got cruises that advertise like no kids allowed, you know. Um, we're a culture that doesn't celebrate it. We're a culture, uh, and I'm talking about Christians, have been swept into this thing. David isn't just calling out for the bloodthirstiness, right? He's also turning on God's people and, and saying, reveal our hypocrisy. And ultimately, he's trying to point the reader to the righteous path. Look at verse 24. See if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. David concludes the psalm with a prayer for God to search him, to reveal his hypocrisy, to lead him in the right path. It's, it's easy on topics like um, pro-life to look at the science and look at how, what the culture is doing and look at how wrong they are and duped they are and whatever. And it's easy to then stand on high moral ground and go, look at them, you know. But David wants it to be turned on us as well. Look at us. We all stand condemned before the Holy God. There's no us and them. We all stand condemned. We all have blood on our hands. But behold the Son of God and His blood on His hands as He hangs on the cross. And if you run to Him, He will forgive you of everything that you have done. 
you will know a love that you have never known before because His love is immutable. It will not change on you. He loves you in His omniscience. He knows everything about you and still chooses to love you. He will love you with His omnipresence, always being with you, never abandoning you. He will love you with His power, giving you strength to survive in a crazy world such as this. David says, lead us in the way of the everlasting. All believers who come to understand these attributes of God that we have discussed in this psalm, it should lead us to a sense of comfort, a sense of awe, and also a a, a sense of unworthiness that draws us in repentance as we realize this amazing God and what He has done for us. God isn't like a man who looks on our outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And God sees in our heart darkness. And He chose to give us new hearts and to rescue us. As we conclude our worship service, we're going to have communion and sing two final songs. As the worship team leads us in song together as a church as we sing and we come to the table, when you come to the table, be reminded of what I started on. The immutable Son of God who took on mutable flesh. Mutable flesh in a womb that's changing, that can be killed, that can be executed. And by God's omnipotent power, raised that flesh back up to life, ascended to heaven and is coming again. We partake in this table until the Lord returns. And while He tarries, let us never, let us never grow tired of sharing the good news that has come for us. And in addition to the good news, let us multitask in standing up in a dark world and being able to engage the dark world to, to, to point out, hey, this isn't right. Hey, there's a better way. Now, children are special. Life is, life is sacred. And the giver of life is holy, and He calls us all to repentance and faith. Let's pray. Let's sing. Let's have communion. Father, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for Your church here at Del Rey. Lord, I pray that You would bless us as we come to the table. Draw us in repentance and faith. May Your law break us down and humble us. And may Your grace build us back up. Lord, there's not a person in this room who got through last week unscathed from sin. And no doubt we will wander in the week that is ahead. We thank You that You know all things and that in Your sovereign graces You have chosen to receive us to Yourself. As we offer offering this morning, as we come to the communion table, as we cry out in prayer and song to You, Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would move among us. Have Your way with us, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.